2014, Angelina Jolie directed a movie um, called Unbroken, based on a book of the same name, uh, about the true wartime story of Louis Zamperini. Now, Zamperini was the son of Italian immigrants to the US. He was quite a handful growing up until his brother, uh, Pete, uh, took him in hand and introduced him to, to athletics. And he very rapidly became uh, a star of the running track um, and competed in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Now, back in that day, uh, American Olympic athletes became real celebrities. They, they became quite famous. Um, and he was really looking forward to the 1940 Tokyo Olympics, uh, where he thought his career would hit a peak. Um, he expected to come home with a fistful of medals, and his ambition was to become the fastest man over a mile um, and to be able to run a quarter mile in under a minute. I think there are statistics that mean something to you runners. But um, not for the first time, the Tokyo Olympics were cancelled in 1914. Um, uh, and by 1942, Zamperini was part of a bomber crew fighting the Japanese over the Pacific. Uh, he had several near misses, uh, but the war finally came to an end for him on May the 27th in 1943, when uh, the bomber he was in uh, went down and was ditched at sea, ironically during a search and rescue mission looking for another lost bomber crew. And he and one crewmate survived two months afloat in a lifeboat before they were finally rescued uh, by the Japanese. Zamperini finally made it to Tokyo after all, but he was now a prisoner of war. And because he was a national sporting hero, the Japanese kept him alive because they hoped that he would become a useful propaganda tool. But when Zamperini refused to take part in this exercise, he was singled out for especially cruel treatment. Now, sadly, uh, the Japanese were not very kind towards the prisoners of war that they took, but he, he had a particularly hard time. And one man in particular made his life miserable. This was the corporal in charge of the camp where he was uh, held, uh, a fellow by the name of Watanabe that the inmates all uh, nicknamed the bird. So in the film, uh, the story Unbroken is told as a story of the resilience of the human spirit against adversity, uh, the determination to survive against all odds. And so it closes with a tearful reunion with uh, Zamperini's family, who of course had thought he was long dead. But in his own telling of the story, Zamperini doesn't finish there. Um, by his own account, he returns home as anything but unbroken broken. Uh, like many World War II veterans, particularly the POWs, he was plagued with nightmares and flashbacks. Uh, he developed depression and anxiety, what we would now recognise as post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and a constant theme in the inner turmoil that he was experiencing was his consuming hatred for the Japanese and for the bird in particular. In fact, as the war had come uh, as it had become inevitable that, the, that Japan was going to lose the war, um, Zamperini and some of the uh, inmates of the camp began to plot how they could kill the bird uh, in the closing days, uh, only to have him slip through their fingers in, in the last day or two. So outwardly, 
Zamperini returns home, a war hero, a great celebrity, um, and his story of survival is much sought after, so he becomes a, a well-known speaker. He hangs out with the celebrity who's who, particularly the Hollywood stars. Uh, he's a frequent presence at famous and prominent parties. Um, and he begins to boast about returning to the running track and preparing for the next Olympics. He tries to use his fame to get into business. But privately and inwardly, his life was disintegrating into failure. And really the one bright spot in his marriage, um, in his life, which was his marriage to this, this beautiful uh, young lady, even that began to turn sour as he turned to alcohol to try and control his demons. And he ends up becoming a, uh, a violent and abusive husband. And at the, and at the kind of the bottom of, of his life, uh, he discovers the injuries he sustained as a prisoner of war are now going to prevent him from returning to the running track. And, and this failure of his Olympic career in particular really got him. And at that point, he said he developed a resolve, a singular resolve, that he would work hard to make enough money that he could return to Japan, find the bird, and as he put it, give him the deadly payback that he deserved. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of 1 Peter, although Peter says, finally, he has at least another three lessons to go. Um, this is the fifth in our series of, of seven sermons. Remember, he's writing to Christians in the province of Asia Minor in the first century. Uh, he's called them exiles because having become Christians, they are now at odds with the values and the aspirations of the culture they've grown up in. And he spent the first two chapters of his letter to them um, working on their identity as God's people. So, of course, they are born anew. They have now become God's children. And because children bear the image of their parents, he has encouraged them uh, in the importance on ta of taking on the character of God their Father. They are to be holy as God is holy. Then last week we saw Peter moving from an explanation about who they are in Christ to the way that they should now live as Christ's people. And we saw that for Christians living in the hierarchical society of the Roman Empire, um, his command was very simple. Submit yourselves. Do good, not evil, especially in the face of unjust suffering. The priority for them was that they should learn how to honour the gospel by living well in that society. And in today's text, Peter takes up this theme of suffering again. And he has another straightforward command to give. When you suffer evil at the hands of others, do not repay in kind. Now Peter had heard Jesus preach on this very subject in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard Jesus had taught an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now because Jesus was fond of using parables and proverbs, which are a pithy, condensed ways of saying things, it's, it's easy to pass over these words of Jesus as, as a kind of a, a simplistic pacifism, a straightforward thing. But Peter's going to examine this problem of suffering at the hands of others and dig much more deeply into Jesus' theology. 
So I want to explore what he has to say under three headings, which I hope will help us. Um, the first is to look at the problem with vengeance. The second is to look at the dividing line cut by the cross. And the third, way, third point is to look at the new way this gives us to live in the midst of suffering. The problem with vengeance, the dividing line that the cross cuts, and the new way this gives us to live in the midst of suffering. So let's look at our first point, the problem with vengeance. When uh, ISIS attacked the airport at Kabul on August the 26th, uh, during that um, frenzied withdrawal of, of people from Afghanistan, um, 13 US service people were, were killed. And President Joe Biden went on public record to say, we will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Now, he wasn't particularly talking about getting justice for the 72-plus Afghans who died in that attack. He was talking about avenging the insult, avenging the outrage that had just been perpetrated against America. And, of course, the sad irony of this is that it was that very sentiment that had taken America and us to Afghanistan precisely 20 years before. Um, in, in the wake of the 9-11 terror attacks, uh, another president, president vowed to go and get Osama bin Laden and uh, to avenge America upon uh, the regime that was harbouring him. Bloodshed has since followed bloodshed. One act of violence has given rise to numerous acts of violence and, and countless thousands of lives later on. Uh, the world is simply not a better place. New generations of terrorists have grown up to replace those that have been killed. New generations of people have since become victims of both acts of terror and the retaliation on terror. We get a little insight into this cycle in the narrative of Genesis 4, in fact. Um, this tells us about the... Uh, immediately after the sin in Adam, of Adam and Eve, it tells about the escalation of violence amongst humans. Their son, Cain, murders his brother, Abel. And the story of Cain concludes with one of his descendants, Lamech, making this boast. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. The descendants of Cain are committed now to increasing violence. And what we learn is vengeance is the outworking of the original problem of human sin. It is not an expression of justice. It's actually an expression of pride. It's an expression of that outrage we experience when we're humiliated by another person's mistreatment of us. And I'm pretty sure most people in this room will have experienced those feelings at some point. Um, you know, you're out somewhere, a group of kids that are hanging around looking for a laugh uh, have a go at you. Um, when someone sends you a very blunt email or text, uh, when someone cheats you or takes advantage of you, it provokes this really deep visceral response. 
Um, we have different personalities, so we respond to that in different ways. Some of us get loud, get aggressive, get in other people's faces. Some of us get very quiet and internalise it and go to work behind the scenes uh, to undermine that person. And as Stephen put it yesterday, uh, we cut them off the Christmas card list. Um, the common element in our behaviour, though, is our desire to actually gain control over the situation again. Because when we're attacked by others, it, it stokes this intense fear of being not only humiliated, but losing control of life. And we want to look and feel clever, and we want to look and feel competent, and so we try and turn the tables around. We try and figure out, how do I get back in charge of this? And, and I have to admit, I've chewed my insides out on more than one occasion, plotting how I might get even and restore my dignity. Well, Louis Zamperini's suffering uh, was intensified by this deep hatred that he developed towards the Japanese. And he became very driven to prove himself competent. Um, and when he failed at that, he became very driven by self-pity. But underneath all of that, he eventually came to realise that what was operating here was pride. And in fact, that this was a problem that had been operating in his life long before the war, long before he had ever become a prisoner of the Japanese. And in fact, that his hatred of the Japanese was simply a reflection of his ongoing pride. Well, like him, we prefer vengeance because... It becomes for us a way of justifying ourselves. And the way we do that is we now divide human beings into two groups. On the one hand, there are the good guys. That's us. On the other hand, there are the bad guys, other people. Now, the bad guys, you understand, are, are evil through and through, whereas our motives are right and they're just. Their acts of violence are uncalled for, they're outrageous, they're barbaric. Our acts of violence are measured and morally defensible. And if along the way other people might get injured, what so-called collateral damage, well, that can't be helped because after all, we're, we're human. But vengeance is nothing more than a cover for pride, thinly disguised as justice. So what then is the real solution in the face of unjust suffering that we experience? Well, as Louis Zamperini's life was becoming unstuck and he was spiralling downwards into alcoholism, he came to a point at which his wife said, enough, I'm going to leave you. And right at this point, they got a new neighbour in the apartment next door, a very gentle Christian man, in fact, who invited them to go to a Billy Graham crusade. Um, Cynthia went, but Louis refused to go. And that night she went, she actually gave her life to Christ. And at that point began to pester her husband until he too finally agreed to go. Well, he went the first night and he absolutely sweated his way through Billy Graham's sermon and left when he'd had enough. It took a little bit of uh, persuading, but he went back a second night. Um, and... During that sermon, he became increasingly convicted about the problem of his own sin and pride 
and the way he had gone about trying to justify himself. But he was still pretty torn. At the end of the talk, waiting for it to be over, um, he got up, walked to the end of the row, intending to turn left and head out of the marquee, but instead turned right. Not quite sure why he did it, but he found himself at the front of the tent, giving his life to Christ. And he experienced a dramatic change from that night on. Um, the drinking stopped. The nightmares he had about being a prisoner of war stopped. And most importantly, that intense hatred that had been burning inside him stopped. He was a thoroughly changed man. Of course, you don't see that in the movie because that's not a story that Hollywood's very interested in talking about. That's not a story about the triumph of the human spirit. That's a story about grace. Because Louis Zamperini wasn't unbroken. He knew that he was a deeply broken man and that only the grace of Jesus Christ was enough to unbreak him again. He had had an encounter with the cross of Christ and gained a new dividing line. So that brings us to our second point. The new dividing line that the cross of Christ cuts in humanity. Now, Peter's doing more here for us than simply giving us a simple lesson in ethics because that's pretty straightforward. Even our culture understands what's wrong with vengeance, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. That's, that's a popular proverb we have. But Peter's ethics goes much deeper than that. In fact, he anchors them in the cross of Jesus. And verse 18 is probably one of the most startling verses in the book of 1 Peter. For Christ, he says, also suffered... Once, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now, it's easy to let that verse slip by you, but it should stop you in your tracks. A righteous person suffered for the unrighteous. A righteous person suffered in place of the unrighteous. Now, in... in in my best moments, I like to imagine that had I lived in Germany or Japan during the Second World War, um, I would have been one of those exceptional people that behaved differently to everybody else. But really, I wonder, would I have been susceptible to the pressure of society uh, and swept along by popular culture like everyone else? Would I have turned a blind eye to what was going on where everyone else turned a blind eye? Um, would I have just been moved by the same emotions and ideas that swept so many people up in their wake? I like to imagine, as a Christian, that I would have been a Dietrich Bonhoeffer or a Corrie ten Boom. Or indeed, I would have been like one of the Japanese guards that um, Zamperini wrote about who was actually a Christian and who on numerous occasions risked his life to bring rations and blankets and other things to prisoners who had been thrown into solitary confinement against the orders of his commanders. Really begs the question, would we have been better than the disciples who fled from Jesus in his hour of need, or the crowd that was persuaded to bay for Jesus' crucifixion? Because Jesus' crucifixion is the real dividing line down the middle of humanity. It exposes what we're really 
about, doesn't it? Because the crucifixion was not some kind of exceptional human behaviour out there on the fringe, it was actually very typical human behaviour. I mean, look at the world we live in right now. Look at human behaviour through the ages and you find things like the cross are actually fairly normal. What happened there was not an outlier in human behaviour, it was normal human behaviour. Because all humanity has inherited the sin of Cain and Lamech, humiliating and degrading other people in order to maintain our own sense of dignity and power, dividing the world into us and them. But the cross draws a very different dividing line. There is only Jesus, the sinless, righteous one, on one side of the line, and everybody else on the other side. We are the unrighteous that he's talking about. And that's not a piece of pious Christian sentiment mentality. That's a piece of historical fact, a piece of biblical truth. The cross is God's response to sin, the unrighteousness of the mob. And as the Apostle John wrote, if we say we have no sin, then we're deceiving ourselves and there is no truth in us. Because the truth is we are the bad guys. We are no different to those who make other people suffer. We are no different to those who have caused us to suffer. Our particular sins might be different, but... We're all sinners, all swept along by pride. We're all susceptible to a love of vengeance. And we all struggle to distinguish that from what real justice actually is. Louis Zamperini made his way to the front of the Billy Graham crusade because he became convinced of his own sin, his own unrighteousness, not a need for emotional healing, not a desire to have God answer his prayers, to become successful and wealthy, not because he was looking for God to rescue him from suffering, but because he understood his own plight as a broken person, plagued by sin and separated from God. That was the problem. And he had discovered, like we have, that the cross is God's response to sin. His response to the unrighteous, and what we discover there is that instead of taking vengeance upon us, instead of doing justice upon us, God chooses to suffer in our place. You know, plenty of people object to Christianity because they imagine that God is some kind of a ruthless judge. They object to the idea that God would assert any right to, to decide between good and evil between who is just and who isn't. But actually, at the cross, we see God's character fully exposed, where Jesus gives up all his rights, where Jesus not only does not respond in kind or, or seek vengeance, but actually deliberately chose to submit himself to the suffering and the violence that was inflicted upon him by other human beings. Vengeance, at its very essence, divides people from one another. But Jesus died 
to reconcile us, not only to God the Father, but to reconcile us to one another. And he did that by crossing over the dividing line. The righteous one, the only one qualified to render just judgment on human behavior, crosses over and suffers in our place, suffers in place of the unrighteous in order that in him he can bring us back across the line and make us the righteous. To be made righteous is more than having um, a deliverance from a declaration of a penalty. It's more than deliverance from that, condemn, from that condemnation. It is to come back into the freedom of being the children of God. It's to come into the freedom of being sons. It's to come into a relationship that is now unhindered by our pride. It's to come into to a freedom in a relationship that's now been freed from the operation of our sinfulness. We now have a new way to live. That is what it means to become righteous. And so that brings us to our third point, that the cross that has cut a new line in humanity now gives us a new way to live in the midst of suffering. After his conversion, Louis Zamperini now began to speak about his experience, but also to tell the rest of the story about his conversion. And a point came at which he felt challenged to go back and tell his story in Japan. And while he was there, he pushed hard for the opportunity to go to the, very, uh, to go to the prison where his former captors uh, had now been imprisoned. And for him, this was going to be the real test. The real test about whether he'd really become a Christian would be the ability to look his former tormentors in the eye and say, I forgive you. Well, not only did he pass that test, but he was actually able to lead some of those people to Christ. And he went to work on behalf of some of them um, and enabled them to have their sentences reduced and, and to be freed. We too, because we have a new identity as God's children, because we bear a resemblance to him, be holy as I am holy, and because we have been restored back to the true human work of being priests and kings, then we too are back in business in blessing the world. Verse 9, Peter says, Do not repay evil with insult, uh, sorry, evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, Repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called. God had blessed the people he made in the garden. God blessed Abraham and his descendants. God said to Jacob, also named Israel, the grandson of Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Now, we might cloak a desire for, gen uh, for vengeance with pious Christian sentiments of doing justice. But in fact, the real work of the Christian is to bless others. And the real work of the Christian is to bless others at cost to ourselves. Like father, like sons. But that obviously raises the question, what about justice? Where does justice come into this when we are suffering? 
Well, Peter quotes from Psalm uh, 34 in verses 10 to 12, which we heard read in full today. This was a prayer of David at the height of his troubles. Um, he, he had fled from King Saul's undeserved murderous rage and gone and sought refuge in the most unlikely place. He'd gone to the Philistines, who were Saul's enemies and his own enemies. He, he literally jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. And in this desperate place, David prays this prayer and puts his trust in the Lord to deliver him both from death, uh, the Philistines, and from uh, unjust suffering, Saul. And because he's the Lord's man, and because he has reverence for the Lord, he knows he must not return good for evil. He will have two opportunities to avenge himself on Saul, who is pursuing him unjustly to take his life, and on both occasions he will refuse because he has reverence for the Lord, knows he's the Lord's man, he will not touch King Saul. Peter says, in your hearts... Revere Christ, which means we are neither to be frightened by the threats of others, but nor are we to be moved by pride when we are threatened or humiliated because we know, like David, that God has delivered us from death and made us secure. And Peter will go on to say that because Jesus has risen from the dead, is seated at the right hand of the Father, enthroned above every power, with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him, then we can leave the business of enacting justice to Jesus. Bless, Jesus said, to those who are persecuted and do not curse. But what about the problem of suffering itself? We haven't really addressed that age-old problem I should point out, actually, that, that Peter, when he talks about suffering, doesn't simply talk about suffering uh, as an evangelist. He doesn't talk about simply being persecuted because you have opened your mouth to talk about Jesus. We commonly think that the New Testament is really only interested in that kind of suffering, um, kind of like being a missionary and, and, and going into an Islamic country. And Peter will get to that kind of suffering in chapter 4. But remember, he began it by addressing Christians in their common state of suffering that they share with all humanity. Subjects of the Roman Empire, many of them slaves, many of them women in, in difficult marriages. And it's true that in that context, Christians would have suffered especially for being Christians, but they were suffering the common things that all people suffer. And so do we. War, disease, famine, Natural disasters, market crashes, plane crashes. We're, we're not exempt. Sorry, Ben, I shouldn't say that before you get on a plane. We're, we're not exempt from that kind of suffering. We will all suffer. But we're called now to suffer differently. And the cross has set suffering now into a different light. Because suffering is not the last word on our existence. Suffering cannot rob us of life. It might shorten our lives, it might remove many good things from our lives, but it can't ultimately kill us.
because we're raised with Jesus. And that means, as Christians, we don't devote ourselves to avoiding suffering at all costs because my comfort uh, is not my ultimate good. Loving God and loving my neighbour is my ultimate good. And to do either of those things actually might require me to forego my comforts. Like going to the UK where it rains 364 and a half days of the year. Um, the other thing we find here is I do not let my suffering define me. I am not my disability. I am not my medical diagnosis. I'm not my mental health problem. I'm not defined by my broken relationships, my poverty, uh, the cultural baggage I might have brought with me. Because none of these are the last word and none of them were the first word in my life. Jesus defines me. His resurrection defines me. His reigning at God's right hand defines me. So what am I supposed to do with the fact that people will suffer and that Christians will continue to suffer? Because if you're an atheist arguing with a Christian, this is, this is the final argument, right? This is the clincher um, that dispels uh, any sense of the reality of God. If God is good and if God is powerful, how can there be suffering in the world? Because that surely means that either he's not powerful he doesn't, he's not able to intervene, or he's not good. He's not willing to intervene. C.S. Lewis, who was, of course, once an atheist himself, said this is the biggest problem that Christians have to answer for themselves. Um, and he said, actually, atheists aren't really interested in that answer. They don't actually really. They, they think they know the answer uh, and that it's obvious. In fact, they have a different problem. Their problem is explaining uh, not is explaining how there can actually be any good in the world. But what we have to struggle with, he says, is the problem of God's apparent inactivity in the face of real human suffering. Now, I've only got about 60 seconds left, so I don't um, pretend I'm going to give you a complete answer for this because obviously expert theologians have wrestled with this problem through the ages, produced uh, there's no end of books produced to the answer of this question either. I don't have a complete answer, but I do know where we should start if we're going to grapple with this question. And we start where God starts. He responds to a world in chaos, a world in which evil is practised by one human on another human without any apparent constraint by sending his own son, born as a human, born into poverty, born in, into a maligned racial group conceived out of wedlock, uh, raised as a tradesman to work hard with his own hands, misunderstood by his family, rejected by his own people, betrayed and abandoned by his own friends, falsely accused by religious bigots, sentenced to death by an indifferent and oppressive government, beaten simply for sport, crucified as a callous political expediency, you know, absolutely humiliated by violence and finally stripped, stripped of every shred of dignity. God sent this son to suffer and die, the righteous one for the unrighteous in order to lead us back to him.
That is God's response to suffering. And so we should know that if God chose suffering as the way that we are going to be redeemed and reconciled to him and made his children, then it really should come as no surprise to us to discover that the Christian life will involve suffering. He's not going to spare us suffering in the process of growing and maturing into the likeness of Jesus. And in fact, it may be necessary for us to suffer. The call then today is not how do I escape from suffering, but how do I suffer well as a Christian? May the peace of Christ be with you all. Amen.